All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 40. In our last recording, we looked at the short transitional section in 1536 through 165. And that little section narrated how Paul returned to visit the churches of Galatia that he started on his first missionary journey. It also showed how Silas and Timothy joined Paul's missionary team. In fact, uh, their names are going to be mentioned in letters that are going to be written during this time period that we'll look at over the next few chapters. But before Luke moved on then to recounting Paul preaching in new areas, what we now call the second missionary journey, Luke gave a little summary statement in 16.5 about the continued growth of the church. And that summary statement is like the curtain closing on Act 4 of Luke's drama. We've noted how throughout Luke's story, he's shown how the Gospels continue to grow and increase by giving these little summary statements. Well, 16.5 marks the end of Part 4, or if you're thinking in terms of like a play, Act 4 of Luke's drama. And that part, that section, Part 4 of Luke's drama, showed how the Gospel expanded into Gentile territories, really showing how Gentiles were quick to come to faith in the gospel. And that then led to some tension and some conflict about wrestling with the place of the Gentiles. Do they have to actually become Jews in order to be part of the new family of Jesus? And we get that whole thing wrestled with in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem conference. Well, now that all of that is settled, Luke wants to show how the gospel continued to expand west into even more Gentile areas, in fact, all the way into Europe. And so in this section, beginning in 166, we now begin what's called the second missionary journey, and we see how the gospel expands into new areas, really all the way into Europe. This is what happens. Verse 6. They, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy, passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. That's a part of Galatia, more on the western edge of Galatia. It would include some of the churches that Paul started on the first journey, such as Iconium and Antioch, but then it would move further west beyond that. So, verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region after having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. All right, this is one of those places where it's really helpful to have a map so that you understand what all is going on. We have lots of places, Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, Mysia, Bithynia, Troas. We've got lots of places mentioned in these first few verses, and it's just detailing uh, how Paul and his team are heading west. And initially, what they want to do is they want to go into the province of Asia. Pro the province of Asia really is the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. So they wanted to go there, but for some reason, uh, the Holy Spirit per didn't permit them to do that. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So it's like, not time. They'll eventually get there. In fact, that'll be the focus of missionary journey number three. But right now, they're going to have to skip over that because they're for forbidden to do that. And so then they're like, okay, let's, let's, since we can't go further west, let's head north. And so they start to head north to Mysia. And they wanted to go all the way north into Bithynia, which is the far northern region of uh, modern-day Turkey, but again, the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to do that either, so they end up 
passing through Mysia, and they come to the city of Troas. So a lot of geography. You might want to get out a map, see where you're at, so you can track what's going on here. A couple other details to note out of this section. First is this. Notice that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7. That's helpful to us to remember that this Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus, right? The, the three in one. They're one and the same. But the, when you call it the Spirit of Jesus, it puts a face on him. Like, Holy Spirit, we have a hard time picturing and knowing who we're talking about. But this reminds us we're talking about a person, a person with the same character as the character of Jesus. He's the spirit of Jesus. And he didn't allow them to travel up into Bithynia. And so they're like, where do we go from here? And they ended up going down to the city of Troas. And Troas is the major harbor city on the northwestern coast of Asia Minor. It was a manufactured harbor. It was actually Alexandrian Troas, named after Alexander the Great. And it is an important city. In fact, a first century geographer by the name of Strabo referred to it as one of the most famous cities in the world. And so it's become a famous city. It's a well-known city, an important city with an important harbor. Since they couldn't go west, they couldn't go north, they end up right on the, the far northwestern coast of uh, modern-day Turkey at this city of Troas. And here's what happens while they're there. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately sought to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they're in Troas. They're not sure exactly what to do in some regards. They couldn't go to Bithynia. They couldn't go to Asia. They're in Troas. And... and the Lord gives Paul a vision in the middle of the night. So dream, vision, right? Paul's kind of asleep. And what he sees is a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is the, the region right across the Aegean Sea from Troas. So if you sail straight across uh, to the west from Troas, you'll end up in the region of Macedonia. So Paul sees someone from Macedonia pleading, come over here and help us, waving them over, come over and help us. And it seems like the Lord is effectively saying that the people of Macedonia are ready, come over there. And so they decide to go to Macedonia. And so in the morning, right, they got ready to leave for Macedonia. But notice what it says there in 1610. When he had seen the vision, we immediately sought to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Did you hear it? We and us. This is the first time in the book of Acts where we get what has affectionately become known as the we sections. They're the sections where the, the author of Acts includes himself in the action. And so it seems here in 1610 that Luke joins the missionary team there in the city of Troas. That's possible. Maybe he joined a little earlier and just hadn't included himself in the action until this moment. But clearly he's with them at this point in 1610 there in Troas. And he, along with Paul and Silas and Timothy, have decided they're going to sail for Macedonia because they conclude that God has called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So... They, they get ready, they find a ship, and they, they head west, verse 11. So, after setting sail from Troas, we, again, ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So, Luke 
details their journey from Troas to the city of Philippi. So they sail from Troas to Samothrace. It's uh, an island in the middle of the Aegean, halfway there, and then from Samothrace on to Neapolis, and Neapolis is the harbor city for Philippi. It's about 120 miles from Troas to Neapolis across the sea, and they did it in two days because they had apparently good winds in their favor that made this a whole lot easier. In fact, we'll actually see later in Acts when Paul is traveling the opposite direction from Neapolis to Troas that it takes a whole lot longer because the winds were against them. But in this case, they have good winds. They make it in two days, and they land then at Neapolis, the harbor city of Philippi, and then they travel about 10 miles northwest inland until they get to the city of Philippi. And here's what Luke says about the city of Philippi in the middle of verse 12. He says, from there to Philippi, which Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were spending some days in this city. And so concluding that God had called them to Macedonia, they go straight across and then inland to the city of Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's not the capital city. Macedonia had been broken down into four districts, and of this district, Philippi is not the capital city, but it is an important city, and it sat right on the major east-west highway, the Ignatian Way. So it's an important, prosperous city. Luke also tells us it's a Roman colony, and that's important. In fact, I think that hints at sort of the big idea of this narrative that Luke's going to tell us, because Paul has already visited other Roman colonies, and he'll visit some more after this. But this is the only one that Luke tells us is a Roman colony, because it's important for how the story unfolds in what follows. Now, being a Roman colony was significant. And it gave Philippi certain rights and privileges that a lot of other cities that weren't colonies didn't have. There was certain taxes and uh, tributes that they didn't have to pay. It gave them uh, the right to free rule where they were directly responsible only to the emperor. Uh, they had some uh, high status and dignity. And Philippi was incredibly proud of its heritage and its status as a Roman colony. In fact, they had been given the highest honor, the Ius Italicum. In other words, they were treated like a little piece of Rome right there in Macedonia, which is a part of northern Greece. Macedonia is named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. So this region had strong connections to Greek history but they also had strong connections to Roman history, and they were very proud of their Roman heritage. The reason that they became a Roman colony is because the last major battle of the Roman Civil War that ensued after the assassination of Julius Caesar was fought on the plains outside of Philippi. And when Octavian won the battle, and Octavian became Caesar Augustus, he settled a handful of his Roman military veterans there in Philippi and gave the city the status as a Roman colony. And then it was given a few more privileges in the history that followed from there. And this was a big deal, and they were proud of it. They're, they were marked by this. We know this because even though they're in northern Greece, the official language of the city appears to be Latin because most of the inscriptions found in the city are in Latin. That's a mark of their connection to Rome, right? Like there's just a number of things about how Philippi took their colony ship very, very 
uh, highly and with a great deal of pride. Well, Paul and his team settle there in Philippi. They're going to do some ministry there for a while. And this ministry uh, happens like this, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were thinking there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. We don't know for sure all of the history that's going on behind this, but this does suggest a couple of things to us. One, it suggests that there wasn't a synagogue in the city of Philippi, and so far we haven't found one. Um, and if there wasn't a synagogue, that means there was probably a very small group of Jews in the city. And thus Paul is going to a place where they're meeting outside of the city, near where they had enough water for ritual washings and some of that next to a river. And so uh, it tells us that Judaism is probably very, a very, very small part of city life in Philippi and probably looked on with a certain level of uh, suspicion or at least looked down on, right? And that, again, plays out in this story. It seems as if there's just a certain level of intolerance towards Jews and Judaism in Philippi. We'll note that as this story unfolds. So Paul goes outside the city, outside the city gate, to a river, gather with some women at a place of prayer. Now, we don't know exactly where this, where they gathered, but it's probably not the major river for the city, the river Gangites, because that would have been a mile and a half walk away, and that was longer than was permitted on the Sabbath. Uh, there's a smaller little river or creek not too far outside of the city, uh, that's only maybe 50 to 75 yards outside of the city. And that's probably where Paul gathered with these women. And so he goes and he uh, goes to this place of prayer and begins speaking to the women that are gathered there. In verse 14, a woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. So we know this about Lydia. She's a Gentile and a God-fearer. That's what it means by a worshiper of God. She's not a full proselyte. She's not really a Jew. She's a God-fearer. So we know that. We know her hometown is Thyatira, another town that was actually famous for purple dye and purple fabrics. And so she's originally from there. Um, she seems to have relocated to Philippi or at least had an, uh, an extension of her business in Philippi. And she's a seller of purple fabric, which probably means she's well off. There were varying degrees of purple, uh, some more expensive than others. But by and large, purple was a fairly costly fabric to make. And uh, thus it became sort of the color almost of nobility or royalty. And so Lydia is a fairly wealthy God-fearer. We, she's going to have a large enough home to actually host the, uh, the new little church and Paul and his ministry team. And so she's a fairly well-off person in the city of Philippi. And she's there. Uh, and she's listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And so in some sense, the Lord softened her heart and made her receptive to the gospel and she believes in Jesus and she responds by getting baptized. Not just her, but her household. Notice verse 15. Now, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, we'll get what she says later, but her response to the gospel, she comes to faith and she gets baptized. And not only her, but her household. 
Who's her household? Well, in the ancient world, the household included whoever was living in the house. And it, it could include her servants if she is married, although it's not totally clear that she is. It, it could be her husband. If she had kids, it could be them. We're not told who's in her household, but uh, it's whoever is living in her household, certainly probably some servants if she's well off. And so they believe as well, and they're all baptized. And so she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so she invites Paul and his team to come and stay at her place. We don't know where they were staying before, but she wants them to stay there as her, really her response of faith and faithfulness. Like, come and stay with me. And Luke says she prevailed upon us. Like, Paul was always kind of a little leery of this, and he was a little resistant of that. And I think that's the sense you get here. She had to kind of beg them until she prevailed upon them. And the reason is, is because, and we see this in Paul's ministry all throughout Acts, he never knows how long he's going to be in a city. He doesn't know how things are going to play out. Persecution arises. He has to flee to the next city. And he never wants to be accused of taking someone's money and run. And so you see him explain in his letters how um, he works for his own room and board. He pays for his own keep. He seems to have a policy of not taking uh, money and offerings from a brand new church when he's first starting a church in that city. And so um, Lydia inviting Paul and his team to stay sort of goes against Paul's approach to things, but she prevailed upon them. And Paul notes in his letter to the Philippians how they were generous and they were partners with his ministry from the first day until the time he wrote that letter uh, a decade later. And so we see that right here, how there's just this sense of generosity and partnership, and they want to support his ministry. They want to be involved in it. And it starts here with Lydia inviting them to stay in her house. And so they do. They stay there and make it the base of operations for their ministry in Philippi. Now, at this point in the story, Luke begins to uh, focus in on a particular thing that keeps happening in town that becomes the catalyst for the rest of the story of Paul's ministry in Philippi. Look at verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave woman who had a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing great profit to her masters by fortune telling. So this is a future Sabbath. We don't know how much later, but they're on their way back out of the city to the place of prayer to gather with the people there and to do some more teaching. And on their way, they're met by a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, literally a python spirit. The reason for it being called that is that the python was actually the symbol of the famous oracle at Delphi, and thus it became associated with anybody who had this ability to tell the future or practice fortune telling. So this particular slave girl has some sort of spirit that's enabling her to tell the future a little bit and do some fortune telling. And notice she's actually bringing in a great profit to her master. So whoever her slave owners are, they're using her to make money by practicing fortune telling. Well, she's following Paul and, and his team along verse 17. And here's what happens. As she's following them, she kept crying out repeatedly saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. So this kept happening over and over again. She's saying these men are servants of the most high God in a Greek context with a 
as spirit-empowered fortune teller proclaiming this. There's a little ambiguity with that, right? Like, that doesn't necessarily just mean Yahweh right off the, the bat. In fact, in the pagan context, that would more likely make people think of Zeus as the most high God. And so she, she's getting the message right, but there's enough ambiguity in it that it's not clear. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. What does that mean, right? Again, they don't have the context for this. And so she's getting the message right, but in her context, coming from her lips, there's ambiguity with all of this. And so uh, Paul, it says, is greatly annoyed by this uh, in the middle of verse 18. And so he turned after a handful of days of this and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. And so she follows Paul and his team around over a handful of days and she keeps crying out uh, and making a disturbance. And finally, Paul's like, okay, enough's enough. We don't need some sort of um, demonic spirit speaking through a well-known fortune teller in town uh, being, you know, our press agent, right? Like this is not good publicity. This is not helpful. It's uh, a disruption. And so Paul, uh, I'm sure for the concerns of his own ministry, Paul also concerned for her well-being uh, as a slave girl, he, he cast the demon out of her and it comes out immediately. Well, verse 19, here's what happens. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was suddenly gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So when her owners realize that she no longer has the spirit, she can no longer practice fortune telling, however she did that in whatever way that looked like, they now realize we're not going to make any more money off this girl. So now they're angry and frustrated. So they grab Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace. That is city center, the Agora. In fact, you can look online and you can find pictures of the uh, ruins of the marketplace, the Agora in Philippi. It would be that area. And you need to picture a crowded public center with statues of gods and statues of the emperors and famous statements. And you've got uh, civic council buildings and you've got temples and shrines and it's the social center of the city. This is like this is like town square. This is where all the action happens. It's It would be a crowded place. It's where the uh, unemployed waited for jobs, where the sick people would go to hoping to be healed, right? The city leaders are there. This is where cases were tried and judged, where people sold their wares. This is town center. It is a crowded place. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the city center, into the marketplace, and they brought them before the city authorities. And verse 20, when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, to the primary rulers of the city, the ones who were responsible for maintaining order and dealing with civic disturbances and trying cases and all that, they bring them right before the city authorities at the judgment seat in the marketplace. And they bring these charges against Paul and Silas. Here are the charges. These men are Jews and are causing our city trouble, and they are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to practice since we are Romans. So notice the charges. Two things about them. One, the first charge is rioting. They're they're causing trouble in our city doesn't just mean they're nuisances. It means they're threatening the stability and the peace of our city. And there were varying uh, levels of this charge, depending on how the Romans saw it. But the Romans took this very 
seriously. In fact, the major job of the chief magistrates was city order, keeping the peace, not letting there be any disturbances or rioting, right? That was really important. So they took that seriously. That's one charge. The other charge is uh, unlawful customs, unlawful religion, and maybe even conversion to Judaism by Romans. And so that's, that's why the charges, in some regards, pit Jewishness against Romanness. Um, these men are Jews, and they're proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or practice. And so there's this implication that they're calling Romans to practice Jewish customs, and that's illegal, and it was actually punishable as a threat to the empire. So that's the charges. Well, the there, since we're in the city center, there's a crowd around them. They joined in the attack against them. In other words, they gave their, their own support of it. They hear, heard it, right? They cheered them on as they leveled these charges against Paul and uh, Silas. This is not mob violence. That's not what joined in the attack. It means joined in the accusations against them. And so the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, the first thing to note here is that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, and we'll get that detail later in this chapter, but we don't get it here, and that's surprising. They could have avoided this beating with rods. They could have avoided everything that followed if they had simply declared their citizenship at this moment as they're standing before the city magistrates right there in the marketplace, but they don't say it. They don't declare their citizenship. Why is that? We'll talk more about that when they do declare their citizenship here in a little bit. The second thing to, to note here is this idea of being beaten with rods. Um, the chief magistrates order them stripped of their clothes, and they have their lictors, their policemen, who the punishment they would inflict would be to take lead rods about a half an inch or a centimeter in diameter and whack these people on the back with it. It was a way both to to placate the, the accusers. They could use it to try to beat uh, information out of persons, right? It was a way just to try to uh, subjugate rabble-rousers and rebellious persons who were disturbing the peace. And so that's what they order uh, to have done to Paul and Silas. And so they proceeded to order them to be beaten with these lead rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So Paul and Silas had their back beaten with many blows with lead rods until it's bloodied and bruised and in great pain. And then the jailer takes them and puts them into the inner prison. Notice that in verse 24. Not just an outer cell, but because they, they were told, he was told to guard them securely, he puts them into the inner prison. The, the central holding cell in the middle of the prison house is what that refers to. So there would be only one door and no windows. It would be, uh, it would be pitch black. It would be stale air, right? No ventilation. It was the securest place to hold prisoners. And in fact, Oftentimes they would move them there in the middle of the night, and it seems like that's what's going to happen in this story. And he fastened their feet in stocks, and so wooden stocks with their legs sticking straight out in front of them and their hands chained. So now notice that their back is bruised and bloodied. They're, they're going to have to sit in an incredibly uncomfortable position in these stocks uh, while they're held in the inner prison. That's the situation for Paul and Silas. How do they respond to that situation? We'll look at verse 25. 
Now, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas, after having this awful moment uh, and being treated this way, both the humiliation and the shame right there in the heart of Philippi, as well as the physical pain and suffering, um, here it is in the middle of the night about midnight, and they're not whining, they're not complaining, they're not... uh, you know, cynical towards God. They're not doubting and questioning. They're like, wait a second. We had a vision. We were sure God called us here. And how in the world, right? They're not griping to God about that. God, how could you let this happen to us after you gave us that vision? And we thought you'd call it. None of that. Instead, they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're actually having a praise service in the prison in the middle of the night. They can't sleep. They're miserable. They're uncomfortable. And instead of whining and complaining, they're worshiping God. And all the other prisoners are listening to them. Um, And it seems like those other prisoners are probably in the holding cell, the inner prison for the night with them because of what happens in what follows. So as they're singing and praying, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And so the doors of the prison house are open. People's chains fall off of them. It's an earthquake in the middle of the night. Could have happened from natural causes, but the timing seems pretty miraculous, right? Um, when the jailer, verse 27, awoke, the earthquake woke him up. He rushes out. He wants to check on his prison and his responsibility. He saw the prison doors open. He immediately assumes all the prisoners escaped. And so he draws his sword and he's to, to kill himself. Uh, thinking that his prisoners had escaped. And so that's his assumption. He assumes they've all escaped, so he draws the sword and he's about to kill himself. The reason for that is very often a jailer or somebody who's guarding a prisoner would suffer the the penalty uh, that the prisoner was supposed to to receive if the prisoner escaped. In this case, he's thinking he lost all the prisoners. He's sure that he's done for, so he's like, it's better for me to kill myself than to go through exile, to go through torture or anything else. So he's just going to kill himself. But, verse 28, Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. That's the one that indicates, seems to imply that all the prisoners are there. How else will Paul know that all the prisoners are there unless they're all there with him? He can see them all. No one's escaped. And so Paul, Paul assures the jailer, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said to him, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so he calls for torches to be lit so he can see what's going on. He rushed into the prison house and his first reaction uh, is he's afraid. He's afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, he knows why uh, Paul and Silas are in prison that they have something to do with the Most High God, uh, right? Like this has been happening throughout town for the last, how no, who knows how many days she's been saying that. He knows that there's, they've got some connection to the Jewish God, right? There's at least enough information that he, and then you get this earthquake in the middle of the night and he's like, I don't know what's going on, but he falls down before Paul and Silas. And then he brings them out of the prison house, presumably into the prison yard and Asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And whatever all he had in mind, we're not totally sure, but here's how Paul 
responded to him. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so if you believe in Jesus, you and presumably some members of his household then are there with him when he tells them this. And maybe some of the servants in his house, maybe his wife is there, right? Like if you believe on Jesus, you and the members of your household can be saved. And then they spoke the word of God to him together with all those who are in his house. And so his members of his household are there. Paul preaches to them and teach, teach them. They explain the gospel more fully to him. And they did believe. And so verse 33, he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And so he calls them to faith in Jesus. Uh, he explains the gospel more fully to them. They put their faith in Jesus. And he actually takes them out in the middle of the night. Um, and the jailer washes Paul and Silas's wounds. And then Paul and Silas baptize the jailer and his household right there in the middle of the night. Did they go out to the creek that's just outside of town where the place of prayer was? Perhaps maybe there was a pool of water there in the, uh, the jailer's house or in the courtyard for the jail. We're not sure where it all happened, but the jailer and his household were baptized right there in the middle of the night. Now, before we return to the story and see what else happens, just a quick aside that I think is important. Uh, some people have used household baptism such as this to argue for infant baptism. And we have to just point out that that assumes a whole lot of things. It assumes that there's infants in the jailer's household since they're not mentioned. It assumes that there's little kids in the jailer's household since they're not mentioned, right? Like a household in the ancient world was different from a household today. A household included uh, servants, extended family, and all of that. So you would have a lot of adults living in a house. And so we can't just assume by household, we're talking about a husband, wife, and their little tiny kids. That's way too much of an assumption to draw from this. Uh, not only that, they're preaching the gospel and explaining and teaching to the members of his household who believe, who they just called to believe in Jesus and say, you got to believe in order to be saved. And so uh, this assumes that there's belief and faith uh, before there's baptism in this story. And so there's no need to assume that this supports infant baptism of any sort because we just don't have that. That's an assumption, total speculation. All right, now back to the story. Um, the jailers baptize the very, that very hour of the night. And then look at verse 34. He takes a huge risk going against what's legally allowed. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and was overjoyed since he had become a believer in God together with his whole household. So all those in his household have become a believer in the one true God. And the jailer is feeding Paul and Silas in the middle of the night. This goes against the law, like he's not supposed to do this. Uh, jailers were not allowed to care for prisoners. Prisoners need to be cared for by their friends who were supposed to bring them food and whatnot to the jail. Um, so he's actually taking a huge risk in doing this, but as a demonstration of his faith and in his gratitude to, to Paul sharing the gospel with them. And in his joy, he feeds Paul and Silas in the middle of the night. Well, the night's over. Day has come. Seems like Paul and Silas were escorted back to their jail cell so that there wouldn't be any trouble on the jailer, presumably. We're not told, but it seems like that's what happens because of what follows. Look at verse 35. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates, 
sent their police officers saying, release those men. So they send the lictors, the policemen, the one who responsible for the beatings of people. They send them to the jail saying, let those men go. Let Paul and Silas go. Well, the jailer, verse 36, reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent word that you are to be released. So come out now and go in peace. He's happy for Paul and Silas. You get to leave. But, verse 37, Paul said to them, After beating us in public without due process, men who are Romans, they threw us into prison, and now they're releasing us secretly? No, indeed. On the contrary, let them come in person and lead us out. And so Paul objects, no way. I'm not leaving um, at this point. I want the city magistrates to come and escort us out of jail. And in this context is when Paul announces men who are Romans, that he and Silas are Roman citizens. So let's think this through. Why does he announce it here and not earlier the day before? He could have avoided being beaten with rods. He could have avoided a night in stocks and in jail. He could have avoided all of that if he simply announced his citizenship just the day before. But instead he doesn't and he announces it here. And the reason is because Paul is governed by what's best for the gospel. Because the charges that were stated against him before the city magistrates the day before pitted Jewishness against Romanness. It would have essentially amounted, if Paul in that context says, well, we're Romans, it would have essentially agreed with them. And it would have also said to the, the incipient church, we have privileges that you may not have. And so you may not be able to avoid trouble, but we can avoid trouble. And it would have created a whole lot of problems for the church going forward. But by awaiting and announcing it now at this point, Paul has the upper hand. And in effect, what, what this does is it means Paul and Silas are act, actually victors in an honor contest there in Philippi with the city magistrates. And so now by announcing it at this point in time, what, what happens is the city magistrates have to come. They have to admit that they were wrong. They have to be now shamed publicly because, remember, they're right in the heart of the city. And they're going to give Paul and Silas a public escort out of jail. And the net effect of that is that the church now will have a leg to stand on in town. Uh, that there will be some credibility because this is the city magistrates admitting publicly that they made a mistake by punishing the founders and the leaders of this new movement. So here, now, Paul says, no, we are not going to leave until the magistrates themselves come. So the officers go to the city magistrates and report back to them. Here's what happens, verse 38. The officers reported these words to the chief magistrates. And they became fearful when they heard they were Romans, and they came and pleaded with them. And when they had led them out, they repeatedly asked them to leave the city. And so the city magistrates realized we've made a terrible error. We are now like we're actually outside of the law. We could get in serious trouble because we treated men who were Romans without the due process allowed to them by their citizenship. We have beaten and shamed a Roman citizen publicly without a fair trial in complete violation of their rights. And so now they realize they've made a grievous error. And so they actually come, they lead them out of the jail through the marketplace uh, which all of that would say to the, the watching city is, oh, wow, I guess those men aren't who we thought they were. And it would all of a sudden give some honor to the, the young church. And the magistrates then begged them to leave the city. 
And so they left the prison, verse 40. They entered into the house of Lydia. When they saw the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and they departed. And so they did decide to leave the city for the well-being of everybody involved. But first they went and encouraged the Christians and then they left the city. What an exciting and fascinating story this is. And here is, I think, one of the major themes and major messages it says to us. I think this, the theme of this story is all about absolute loyalty to God and the gospel, that uh, Paul did what was best for the gospel. And so as he comes to town in the city of Philippi, the choices he makes are driven by this. He, even before this, he circumcised Timothy because it was best for the gospel. He endured an illegal, unjust beating because it would actually serve the best interests of the gospel. Paul sang in uh, prison uh, and prayed to God in prison instead of complain. And the gospel shone brightly even in his darkest hour because that was in, in the best interest of the gospel, right? Because he was so driven by the gospel. Paul refused a secret private release from jail. Well, because that would undermine the credibility of the gospel. He was driven by the best interest of the gospel. And so this story really raises that question for us. Does the gospel's best interest govern our life like it uh, governed Paul's life? Would we give up good things because we want to actually serve better things in the form of the gospel? Are we willing to make decisions based on how will this affect the reputation of the gospel? How will this advance the gospel? How will this help the church be stronger? Paul was driven by what's in the best interest of the gospel. We see that here in this story, and it really presents, I think, a powerful challenge for you and for me.